Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am thrilled to be chatting with Dr. Laura Neville. Uh, she's with Doctors Data, and of course, they're always coming out with fabulous testing options for those of us practicing uh, functional medicine. Let me give you a little bit of her background, and we'll jump into our conversation today. Uh, Dr. Neville graduated from my alma mater, National University of Natural Medicine, and she maintains a private practice in Portland, Oregon, with a focus on endocrine health, including type 1 diabetes, Hashimoto's, and hormone optimization through the female lifespan. She sits on the advisory board for Hormone University, providing evidence-based alternative medicine research and clinical expertise. Dr. Neville is also a staff physician at Doctors Data, where she writes, research, researches, and consults with physicians around the world on complex cases. She is a frequent speaker at professional conferences around the country on the topic of women's health, testing methodologies, brain health, and type 1 diabetes. Dr. Neville, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's just really nice to connect with you. And I had a great, we've been, we've actually been chatting far too long, folks. Uh, Laura and I just kind of getting to know each other and our backgrounds and talking a little bit about our experience at, at NUNM. You have a great story on what brought you kind of into natural medicine and really at to doctor's data. You know, you landed at a laboratory, which of course I think is cool because, you know, my story is similar. I was in the medical education department at Metametrics, now Genova Labs, many, many years ago, and it really influenced me deeply in how I practice medicine. But so tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of how you got here and how you ended up at DDI. Yeah, so, you know, I was really inspired to go to naturopathic medical school because of a hormone test that my ND actually ran on me when I was about 23. So this is back when I knew nothing. I was eating terribly. I was doing, you know, all of the, the horrible things to not support my health. Um, but this test was instrumental in my life, really changed my health path for the better. I was actually diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was seven and, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, but certainly endocrine health in general and, and keeping sex hormones balanced really supports uh, type one diabetics health. And mine was kind of the opposite story, at least at that point in my life. So, you know, I, if I look back, I mean, it was that test that allowed me opened this entirely new world to me where I understood food as medicine and how that could change not only, you know, my type one diabetes, but just my health in general, acne, you know, facial hair growth that I had, um, fatigue. And so I carried a copy of this test around for years. I had, it was basically, you know, years later, it was a copy of a copy of a copy. I could barely read it, but I remember what wow. the levels were and how my life changed so much when I had just a few simple treatment plans from the naturopathic doctor based on this test. So, you know, here I have this barely legible test. That the ink is uh, pale and, you know, fast forward, I graduate from medical school. I've been working with doctor's data for about three years. And I thought, well, you know, now's a good time to go run my own hormone panel. Let me see you know, what's going on. And I went in to find the test result. I actually found my name in the system already. And I thought, well, that's 
odd. Why, why am I already in the system? I realized that was the test that the same company, the same test. I hadn't realized that until this moment that that was the hormone test that started, you know, my entire health journey. So not only was I able to see this amazing before and after, which is like crystal clear how much things improved, but I just got major goosebumps. It was this full circle moment. And now I'm sitting on the other side of that test, able to help so many other people and practitioners help their patients. So it was like that. I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you just feel like I am doing what I'm meant to be doing. This was, this was like the journey of full circle, full circle journey. It's such a beautiful story. I love it. I just got goosebumps also when you shared it. Just, it is, it's so beautiful and so powerful. And I, I want to know more. I want to ask you more about it and what you did (laughs) and what you learned, but to have that, I mean, clearly it was exquisitely important to you because you carried around this dog-eared doctor's data test, you know, just for so many years, because it was that, it was your your change point. Wow. What a, what a great story. And thank you so much for sharing that. Um, all right. So let's move into talking about, you know, your area of expertise, like inside and out from your own personal journey to how you, you know, where you are now as a medical education expert at DDI and a, and a naturopathic physician. Um, you're good at hormone testing. I mean, you've just really devoted it. Talk to me about um, the different testing mediums um, you know, what ones we want to be using or how we want to consider general, like we so said, we want, we're, as clinicians, there are a lot of labs talking to us about what we should be doing. Dr. Sita has been around, I think the longest actually, um, the work that, anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. 1972. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You've been at work, you know, in this world, uh, really longer than longer than any of the other functional labs. And I know that your commitment to um, the science is very rigorous and I appreciate that. So what do you guys think on how we wanna be running hormone tests? Yeah, so, you know, I, and I think I speak for all of us when I say that the practitioner is in charge, right? Like you, you have the ability to decide what is the best medium. And I think, you know, this, kind of argument of serum versus saliva versus urine, it's been going on for a long time. And it, it's really kind of a, um, a shame because it, it's not, it's not versus, it's just that we're comparing apples to oranges to pears. They're all amazing mediums. They give you very valuable information, um, each and of themselves. And so really you just have to decide what is the lens at which you want to understand your patient's hormones. So just briefly, I think the, the main aspect to understand so that all of this makes sense is that we're talking about steroid hormones when we're talking about sex hormones. They're derived from cholesterol. So they have different movement and physiology in the body, unlike things like thyroid stimulating hormone or FSH, these protein-based hormones. So when we consider that, it becomes pretty easy to just you know, have a simple overview, knowing that serum, you're looking at the bound or the inactive portion of the hormone. So in order to, you know, float around in an aqueous bloodstream, it has to be attached to a protein carrier. So that's really what you're looking at when you're looking in serum. When you're looking in saliva, you're looking at the unbound, more of a bioavailable look 
uh, what's reaching the tissues very likely. And then with urine, you're looking at how that hormone is breaking down, metabolizing and exiting the body. So, you know, as long as you bring it back to that and come back to that simple overview, I think you'll be in good, a good place to be able to choose which one is appropriate, you know, for, for the patient in front of you and what you're trying to gain as a clinician, what information you want to look at. Any preference for when you're actually prescribing hormones as a result of the lab findings or using the lab findings as guidance on your prescription? Is there a preferred specimen in your opinion? Yep. Um, so, you know, we're talking about baseline versus monitoring therapy. And again, you know, arguably all of them can be used for baseline, but really to your question, and it's such a brilliant one, it's when you're monitoring this response to treatment, this is where it becomes a little bit more uh, important to choose the correct medium. The transdermals have transdermal therapies, uh, hormone replacement, meaning they have a unique transport in the body. They move differently than if they're endogenously produced. And because of that, saliva really is arguably the best way to look at transdermals. Um, you know, we have quite a bit of, um, underestimation or overdosing that can happen when you're looking at some of those other mediums to try to understand, is this dose correct for this patient? And are they absorbing this and, and all of that? So uh, saliva is definitely my preference when I'm looking at, at any type of hormone replacement, especially transdermals. That's where you really need to be looking in saliva. All right. So this begs one more question and then I'm going to, we'll, we'll keep moving. I don't want to digress too far, but what if you're using some a non- uh, HRT intervention? What if you're using botanicals or lifestyle um, or diet interventions to modulate uh, sex hormones? Then what you, yeah, or steroid hormones more broadly? Yeah, I have found through, you know, looking at thousands and thousands of tests over the years that the botanicals may modulate the hormones slightly. Um, if somebody say, isn't ovulating and you're, you're stimulating ovulation, that's going to be a more, uh, you know, great improvement. If you can get that progesterone level up and it's showing that they're ovulating, but for the most part, it, it's fairly small changes that you're going to see. And so, um, I would track that much like baseline, you know, choose the medium you would like and, and use that same type of testing to see before and after. And, you know, specifically with the botanicals, I'm, I'm much more interested in the subjective patient improvement rather than I'm not expecting to see massive changes in the hormone levels, maybe slight, but uh, nothing remarkable to, to really need to be utilizing testing for that. Got it. Got it. But you might want to be looking at metabolites, right? To just see if you've yes, shifted yes. elimination. Yes, is, right. So, that's, so that's sort of a, I'm not so interested at what is the tissue level? How is that changing? It's not going to change a whole lot. Metabolites and the direction at which they're metabolizing. Yes. That's where really urine comes into play and is, is the star at that point. Okay. So is there anything else you want to add to this? I mean, I know we've talked about each of these specimen types, um, uh, any additional, uh, points, like for instance, if we're, you know, what's your favorite, we we're talking about sex hormones. We're leaning more towards sex hormones in this conversation, although more broadly, we're talking about steroid hormones. So let me just ask you about cortisol and, 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 and the, and the specimen most best to, uh, look at cortisol. 
So I like also saliva for looking at cortisol for a few different reasons. Um, you can capture that at 30 minutes post waking, which should be the peak of cortisol production for the day. So you can be very specific with that um, and that timing. And then also you can capture something called the cortisol awakening response, which is looking at waking um, and then 30 and 60 minutes post waking. So that can really give you a great idea about HPA access health, how that's functioning. Um, and you can also on top of that, in addition to that, see a diurnal rhythm. So hopefully highest in the morning, gradually dropping off lowest at night. Sometimes people will have inverse curves where their cortisol, you know, uh, shoots up before bedtime. And so you can really get, you know, just a, a very time sensitive look at this diurnal rhythm, circadian rhythms and, and the cortisol awakening response. Oh, that's extremely helpful. Would you use, would you, would you use serum for cortisol? You know, I don't prefer it. You can test there, although, you know, the timing becomes much more difficult. It's, it's pretty hard to get that, you know, 30 minutes after someone wakes up, roll, roll without uh, brushing your hair, just go straight to the lab. Um, and then, you know, there are some issues too. We find, you know, ACTH actually can elevate just from a venous blood draw and ACTH will then cause a cortisol increase. So, you know, the timing of that based on, you know, how quickly that blood draw is done could affect the actual cortisol level itself just from that, that blood draw. Maybe that depends on, you know, the patient and how much they dislike needles or not, but, you know, that is something to consider with, with that type of testing. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the in some of the some of the deliveries of hormone replacement therapies and um, physicians are using oral. I know that there's more oral progesterone and even oral estrogen um, being used in women. Uh, but then I think many of us still lean pretty heavily on transdermal. Uh, talk about your thoughts on the benefits of these delivery routes. And again, just I know we talked a little bit about transdermal, but just talk about evaluating response to therapies using uh, labs. Yeah, so the oral delivery, I think, you know, great because it's easy, you know, patients are familiar with that, but really, you know, when it comes down to it with estrogen, we do see some negative effects with that. The liver seems to be a little irritated with oral delivery and we can increase inflammatory markers and things like that. So for certain reasons, uh, you know, transdermals are oftentimes uh, the, the better choice. And when we're talking about transdermals, this is where the testing gets really tricky. So endogenously delivered sex hormones are produced, are traveling around the body and through the bloodstream attached to say sex hormone binding globulin or albumin to get around. However, when they're applied topically, they're actually going skin directly to capillaries. And those capillaries um, are small enough. We don't have protein carriers within that. The sex hormones are actually being delivered to the target tissue, loosely bound to the red blood cell membrane, which is different than endogenously produced hormones. So that unique delivery, we think uh, partly you know, bound to the red blood cell membrane, partly 
perhaps lymph too, but they're going directly to the tissues, they're cleaved off, and they're able to move into the tissues through free diffusion. So in order to capture that, that's really only shown in the saliva. It's only when that red blood cell membrane carrying capacity is maxed out, does the hormone kind of slop over into the serum and you can actually see those levels in the serum. So basically, and at the end of the day, we're talking about transdermal overdosing. That's the only way you can have the serum levels rise or the urinary levels rise. And so my argument is if we want to dose our patients with physiologic levels, then we need to be tracking that through saliva testing if we're using transdermals. And HLS would be required, obviously, for transdermal. Is that correct? Say that again. Much less, much less of the of, of the HRTs would be required for Absolutely. transdermal. Yeah, much yeah. lower doses are needed. Yeah. Um, what about progesterone uh, risks? I mean, so what is what about your ideal delivery? Uh, for progesterone therapies and uh, risks associated with using progesterone? Yeah, so I, this is a controversial topic because I think if you look in the research, oral by far is touted for its protection of endometrium. So pr protecting the uterus from the proliferative effects of, of estradiol supplementation. So oral is always going to be the recommendation if someone is using a estradiol of any type. Um, I think that transdermal is likely probably protecting the endometrial uh, tissue better than oral, but we have to take caution here. You know, I respect the research and for as it stands now, you know, oral is, is the go-to for that. There are some articles showing that the higher the dose of oral progesterone, the better the endometrial protection is. So once we reach, you know, levels uh, higher than 100, 200, up to 300 and 400 milligrams of oral progesterone, that's where you get the best endometrial protection. However, we've also seen some studies indicating that those higher doses, higher than 200 milligrams, we're starting to see the metabolites move uh, and push towards pregnanes rather than pregnenes. And that potentially has been associated or has in the research been associated with breast cancer. So I don't think that there's enough there to definitively say, but it does give me pause. Um, and so, you know, oral has been, you know, touted again to be the safest form. Um, I think only time will tell. Hopefully there's more research that comes out with transdermals, but um, that's, that's where it stands as of now. And are those metabolites derivatives of progestins or bioidentical progesterone? Just they are derivatives of bioidentical progesterone. Um, the pregnanes are more the metabolism towards allopregnenolone. So you get a lot more of those with oral dosing because of the liver um, detoxification or metabolism, whereas you're not getting those so much with the transdermals. It's not moving to that allopregnenolone. Sure. Um, so, but there is some benefit <laughs> with those metabolites. Yes. Oh, as well. absolutely. Yeah. And, okay. and oftentimes, you know, it, it is my preference if a woman is having a hard time falling asleep or has anxiety, you know, that allopregnenolone, it's stimulating GABA receptors. It's amazing. People feel much better. And so I think 
it's a, you know, it's not an all or none here. We certainly want some of that, but once we get into those really high doses, I do have pause or do we have just too much of that? Um, and, and, you know, some, some is okay and too much is not great. Right, right. Well, let's talk about urine where we get to look at some of the metabolites. Um, using urine, so to identify whether or not they're, if you're using, if you're using HRT, whether or not they're, they're metabolizing cleanly, but you're using urine for a lot of different reasons. So just kind of talk us through about how you, uh, how you use it to monitor HRT, maybe, you know, some of the metabolites you're interested in. Are you able to actually pick up healthy progesterone metabolism looking at, looking at urine, um, you know, and just any other thoughts you have? Sure. So, you know, urine is, is wonderful. It's, it's the go-to way to understand metabolites. And I think that's the, that's the key word there. So whether that's endogenous production or exogenous supplementation, you want to know how, like, as you said, so nicely, how cleanly is this person metabolizing? What direction are these metabolites moving through? What is the pattern? Um, and, and we can glean some potential risk assessment from that, right? So uh, we do have research showing that some of these pathways are more estrogenic or more androgenic than others. So for instance, with estrogen, the 2-hydroxyestrone uh, and 2-hydroxyestradiol those pathways are thought to be safer, less estrogenic than say the 4-hydroxy or the 16-hydroxy um, because those ones are more potent, they're more estrogenic. So we can actually see that in how that, that individual patient is metabolizing in which direction you know, those metabolites are headed. We can also see, okay, if they're going through this more dangerous pathway, are they at least pushing that and methylating that basically into phase two detoxification? So we can see uh, phase one, we can also see phase two, we can see if anything is stagnant there, we have the potential to come in with uh, modulators and, and, you know, help the body to improve that, which is really great. Um, so for all of those reasons, it's, it's wonderful. I do not use it to track dosing because especially in a lot of my patients, I'm using transdermals because of the uh, mechanism and the physiology by which that's moving through the body. Um, and, and arguably with transdermals, if you're using physiologic doses, you shouldn't be seeing a whole lot of that, um, at least the parent hormone, the unconjugated amount in the urine, especially with things like progesterone, because of the polarity of that molecule, it's closest to cholesterol on the steroid hormone cascade. And so really very little of that actually ends up in the urine. So it's kind of looking at um, what's exiting the body is not necessarily reflective of what's at the tissue levels. So I don't use it for that purpose, you know, but I am looking at, okay, with this hormone supplementation, how is that metabolizing? What does the pattern look like rather than, hey, should I change the dose here? What is the parent you know, um, unconjugated hormone level in the urine. That uh, isn't what I'm using it for. So, yeah, I mean, we want to look at the metabolites. I think it's exquisitely important when we're doing HRT. Um, and really, arguably, all of us probably need that evaluation, men and women, you know, at, at, at some point and perhaps multiple time points uh, yeah. through our lives, whether we're doing HRT or not. I think it's that important to look at these urine metabolites. Um, 
so I guess, so my question is how frequently are you running the urine metabolite assays? And, you know, what are you, I know you're using saliva, but can you just tell us which saliva assay you're using um, when you're evaluating directly the response to transdermal therapies? Sure. So um, if I'm, if I want to know, hey, is this dose correct? I'm using, you know, the, the salivary direct immunoassay. So we're looking at, um, with our testing, it's called the, like a comprehensive hormone profile, looking at estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, and maybe some diurnal cortisols. I can marry that and match that add-on urinary metabolite testing, that to me is like the most powerful approach. That's, that's like a slam dunk to, to get the best information on both sides. What is at the tissue level? I think of the body kind of like a garden. What do we have, you know, as available starter material at the brain, the breast tissue, the bones, and then how is that metabolizing? How is that moving through the liver and detoxifying? What does that look like in the urine? Are there ways that we can support detoxification to make this dosing safer for them? So that's perfect. So you order, do you, or you always order that, that panel, that complete panel when you're evaluating? Yeah. So as a baseline, I like that one. Um, when I'm retesting, you know, will kind of depend if I've implemented hormone replacement and I just want to take a back peek and look at estrogen and progesterone. Maybe those are the two things I've implemented. I may just, you know, pick those two to take another peek at. I usually will do that three to four months after I've begun hormone replacement to understand that and then add on metabolite testing. I may have looked at that at baseline too, though. That would be probably um, what I do most often. And, and, you know, again, the best way to marry those two. I think it's a super powerful approach. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so uh, speaking of the various tests that you're using, uh, you, DDI, just released a new panel. So just give me, give us the lowdown on this new panel. Yeah, so we have our brand new panel is the hormone and urinary metabolites assessment profile. So we call it HUMAP for short, so you don't have to say all those words out every time. But um, it's a really exciting test. It's a four-point collection. It's a liquid urine test using what's called LCMS. It's it's a liquid chromatography tandem with mass spectrometry. So. Uh, this type of test and, and kind of the laboratory methodology is very, very precise. It's really exciting. This probably came around, came about in the 2000s, um, but, you know, very exciting because it's so, so specific. You can get really, really detailed looks at tiny little metabolites and, and get a full picture understanding. So we're all very excited. And well, tell me what's on it what we're looking at in this, in the new HUMAP? Yeah. So um, we have a real understanding from our perspective that, you know, um, physicians and, and practitioners, we, we just need a, like a one to two page, really good glance at what is clinically applicable for me, right? You tend to get these 20 page reports and you're like, okay, this is, this is great, but where do I go with this? Um, so we've really, you know, the report itself is extensive, but we're really focusing on making the first two pages just at a glance for the busy practitioner. So page one, first of all, it's gorgeous, let me say, but 
it's giving you the most clinically relevant information. Um, and then we're diving into the estrogen specifically. So the estrogen metabolism of phase one and phase two and showing that to you. And then also showing you cortisol metabolism and some of the uh, key relationships as far as the enzymes. So that's all going to be on page one. And what's really amazing about this report is that it's dynamically reported so that the color coding, whether something's high, upper range, low, normal, you know, low range, that color coding changes for every single patient on the report on that first page. And so really just brings to life those numbers um, and is very individualized. So you can just take a quick glance and have an idea, you know, almost like a bird's eye view as to what's going on. Is there stagnation happening? What's elevated? What's low? Um, so that you can, you can see that when you are super busy in practice and just get, get straight to the point, bottom line. Yeah, I love it. It actually is. It is beautiful. You, I, clearly, you worked long and hard on synthesizing complex information and basically yeah. making it at a glance. Yeah. And I think drawing the, drawing the clinician to where they might want to flip over to some of the more detailed explanations and do a little bit of a drill down, but really saving us from sort of the time-consuming world of, you know, analyzing these, these um, you know, these broad evaluations that we're conducting. So yeah, it is, it is, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable at a glance um, first page. The second page is actually really cool too, if you want to describe yeah. that. Yeah, the second page is really beautiful as well. That's the um, entire steroid pathway. So you're going to see how all of the uh, metabolites in every hormone neighborhood. So estrogen, progesterone, you know, the corticoids, the androgens, they're all connected. And you can see that dynamically reported again. So that color coding is going to change based on your individual patient's profile. What, it, and you're using, this is a, this is a urine test and you're using saliva as well. So the HUMAP is the liquid urine metabolite test. Oh, okay. My okay. point to saliva is just as a clinician, I like to add that on a lot of times and marry that to something you, like the HUMAP, but you can do Which just, you can do that, right? You can add, you can add it to the HUMAP. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, talk to me about the difference because there are a number of labs producing, you know, kind of broad analyses of, of steroid metabolites. So what's, why is this different? And I do want to say that I, I appreciate that you're doing LC tandem mass spec, uh, because I think you're right. That's the best uh, technology to be using for, for, for steroid hormones. And, you know, what else makes this uh, a standout? Yeah, so it's a little bit different than some of the other tests out there. It is a liquid urine versus some of the companies do a dried sample. Um, so that makes it a little bit different. And then we do have some additional analytes uh, as far as um, more specific analytes in the androgens section. We also are showing estradiol methylation in addition to estrone methylation. Typically estrone is the one that is shown, but we're adding on both of those. And it's really interesting because, you know, though the COMT enzyme is, is supporting both of those, we oftentimes don't see the estrone methylation happening as readily with estradiol methylation or vice versa. So they don't necessarily always match up. So I think it's an additional 
uh, way to look at that and give some more clinical information as to methylation uh, ability for your patient. So this would probably be the standout things that are different. Um, I think also important to realize if you do say neurotransmitter testing, if that's something that you like to do in clinical practice, that is um, also through our lab as a urinary test. So that's something that you can actually also add on to this test in with the same sample. So no extra collection wow. on the patient's um, behalf, but they can use that same sample to run that. Wow. Okay. So you could add on saliva, you could add on um, neurotransmitter metabolites. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And, you know, we've been talking about um, interventions. We've been, we've been, we've talked about HRT. We've talked about, you know, sort of general overview of some of the botanical interventions uh, and what we might see on labs. But tell me what are some, some of the therapies that you're using, other clinicians are using. I mean, when I was in the meta department, one of the things that was fun was not only was I able to look at, as you said, thousands and thousands of tests, but I was also able to talk to the clinicians and find out what they were using and what doses and, you know, what were the various indications. I mean, you really have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in our world in an extraordinary way. So it's, it, it behooves me to pick your brain because you're there in the trenches now, you know, learning every day so, so, so much. And what are some of the standout interventions? Yeah, yes, to your point, it is, it is an amazing place to be. You know, I get to see that in my clinical practice on my own, but I get to speak to people all over the world, physicians all yeah. over the world. And it's just so amazing. And it's such an honor to be able to hear what they're doing. And as you said, have a pulse on things. But, and look uh, at some of the most challenging cases and some of yeah. the most unusual labs and yes, and more yeah. sort of genetic conditions that you wouldn't see in a lifetime of practice. Yeah, you, right. you get to, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> so tell us what, what people are using, what kind of dosing, what are some of the standout yeah. therapies? Sure. So I think the standout therapies, everyone's probably heard of methane. You know, that's strong in the research showing that it's helping us to move towards that two hydroxylation of, of estrogen urinary metabolites and moving towards the less estrogenic side, what we think of as the safer side. Flaxseed seem to do that as well. Um, there are there are nutrients and substances that will help to uh, induce phase one detoxification. So supporting that things like cruciferous vegetables, citrus, especially grapefruit, green tea does that as well. And then there are nutrient reducers of phase one. So things that slow down phase one, uh, like berries, quercetin and berries and the APACA vegetable family. I find this so fascinating because this is showing us that these nutrients have a tonifying action. It's not moving in one linear direction. So you may want to slow down phase one if phase two isn't happening as readily as, as say the body would like it to. And so within this natural, you know, um, substances, the built, the body seems to have this innate intelligence to be able to pull from these different types of, of support mechanisms to do that, which I think is just one of the most interesting parts of all of this to me. Um, there's also something that is referred to as biphasic modulators. So again, really interesting. We see low dose turmeric 
appearing to promote phase one, whereas higher doses may actually inhibit it. So, you know, you see this, this dual relationship in a lot of the plant compounds. Um, so that, you know, methane, those biphasic modulators, antioxidants, things like glutathione and melatonin, um, certainly utilized to uh, mop up oxidative damage that as much as we would like that to not be happening at all, it is. And so um, we, we can utilize that. Other standout therapies, probably NAC and resveratrol come to mind. Um, but again, as you mentioned, I'm learning more and more and speaking to physicians every day, but those are, those are the ones that stand out in my mind. And some of them have been, are tried and true for, you know, time immemorial, like methane. Um, yeah. Interesting though, about turmeric, you know, and the, and the dose response, very, very interesting. So we're prescribing turmeric all the time at really pretty high doses for inflammatory conditions. Um, and we might want to be a little bit mindful, right? If we've got somebody who's got, say, you know, something associated with uh, estrogen dominant picture that we could be actually exacerbating that. Right. Would right. you say that's true? It's, it's possibly true. Yeah. I mean, I think um, once we get into those really therapeutic high doses, I think we always have to be mindful, you know, of, of like, how is this changing um, the, the landscape? And yeah, I think that's, that's very true. Um, gives us pause at least. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're doing, you know, if we're kind of doing a broad sweep with our patients, I, I'm about to actually ask for time. It's funny. My annual labs are mm -hmm. upon me. I'll be getting every, every summer I do my, my broad sweep. I get a, you know, I'll do my, my urine metabolites and um, I'll do my cortisol awakening, but I'll do all my nutrients and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm, taking notes yeah. <laughs> as I get ready for my own, my own lab journey here in a couple right. of weeks. I'll get my lipids and, you know, my, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that can be hard to budge and can be really concerning for clinicians is an elevated, uh, for hydroxy. And, and I just, I wanted to ask you, so this is the, actually, why don't you first talk about that what that metabolite is and why it gives us pause. I'll, 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 I'll let you describe it. And then what are your interventions that seem to be um, budging that? Yeah, so the 4-hydroxy is just, uh, it's, you know, as the body's breaking down estrogen, it can go in three different directions, 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, or 16. And we look at the research. The research tells us that the 4-hydroxy pathway, that direction, is potentially more risky because it's more proliferative. It has a higher estrogenic potential. So when we're thinking about breast cancer, you know, things like that. That's really what what we're concerned with. So how do we get it to budge from going, you know, in that direction more towards that two hydroxy um, pathway? And you know, I have found diendylmethane to be effective in that, but I think. It's not just about the supplementation. I mean, really, we have to be getting um, increases in dietary fiber intake. And so fruits and vegetables, you know, I think there was a study from 2018 that found the healthiest people were eating 30 or more plant-based 
things per week. And so I'll oftentimes tell people that it's not just the supplementation. We really have to get the gut microbiome on board that is going to be helpful at changing, you know, these pathways. And it's not just about one lovely supplement as wonderful as they are, but, um, you know, I have found those to be diatomethane to be very valuable in that regard and flax seeds as well, turmeric as well. Um, those are, those are usually the go-tos for me. Good. That's great. Um, and you mentioned breast cancer, but obviously if we're concerned about prostate cancer, same thing, we're going to be looking Absolutely. at more hydroxy. So men are not excluded from this investigation by a long shot. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to just ask you, I guess I have two more questions, just kind of circling back to Dr. Stata and, you know, the fact that you've been around the longest. I, I've known Daryl, your, your CEO, CEO for, for many years, and he's, yeah. he's actually, I, I really appreciate him. He's been, he's been a good friend and a good support of our work here. And I appreciate, um, you know, I appreciate the, the rigorous science that he uh, advocates for over at DDI. So my two questions in wrapping up are anything else that we didn't get to cover that our uh, clinicians and savvy um, regular folks who are listening to this podcast need to know? And then just talk to me a little bit about, you know, the, the Dr. Zeta and who you guys are and what you're up to and you know, if there's anything you can share, any, any new, new, new tests coming down the pipeline that you can yeah. <laughs> um, But just you know, those two things, are, and, and then we'll, we'll take it home. Sure. Well, you know, I think when I first saw the testing facility at DDI, I was blown away. There's an incredible state-of-the-art testing facility. And again, I know we mentioned this before, but we have been in the business in 1972. It's our 50th anniversary this year. So it's really exciting. Um, but there are over 75 different profiles that you can run if you have uh, if you work with doctor's data as a practitioner. So not just the HUMAP test that we're talking about today, though that in and of itself, I think is very exciting. You know, the saliva hormone testing, as I talked about, you have access to neurotransmitter testing, uh, microbiome testing, gastrointestinal health testing, toxic elements, so many tools at your fingertips. We have a team of clinical practitioners, including myself and scientific support were available for consults on all of the testing. I specifically, and we specifically know what it's like to be in clinical practice and just needing to talk out a case, you know, having some struggles and feeling kind of alone and at a loss. And you all are on the forefront of, of testing and, and pushing the boundaries and knowing how to treat patients in such a holistic manner that sometimes you are the only one out there doing that. And so, you know, you want to get on the phone and just have a friendly voice that understands, you know, a lot of what, what you're dealing with. Um, and we're happy to do that. I love, you know, like we were talking about just being able to talk to so many different providers and glean expertise in that way. And, and I'm happy to share that with you all as much as I can. Um, but you know, that's, that's, I think, a wonderful part of doctor's data is, is just having that support so that when you get that HUMAP report, you don't feel at a loss of, okay, how do I look at this? What should I do with my patient? You know, we can help walk you through that um, and, and talk about different aspects. I just want to, uh, I just want to underline that as I also 
I also got to do it. And as I said earlier, I found it really rewarding. I spent many a lunch, you know, speaking with clinicians who are who who are famous. <laughs> I won't yeah. mention names. I mean, just I would check in with them first. But uh, just both of us kind of doing this work together, and I appreciate having an expert such as yourself to be able to, 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 to chew a case over what, and if any, any clinician is listening to this and you haven't uh, reached out to the doctor's data team, I just do it. I think that you'll appreciate that you've done it and you may find yourself doing it, you know, really over and over and over again until you've got your sea legs on interpreting laboratory data. And that's, I think how your team should be utilized. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, I, I want people to know we're here for them. I think sometimes people are a little shy about calling in or they feel like maybe they're just beginning and they feel a little embarrassed about that or they, you know, um, feel ashamed that they don't know this test from back to front. And I will tell you, you know, I've been with Dr. Zeta since 2016 and I arguably know a lot about hormones yet when you call in we're all we're all learning together yeah. you know and so I think um it's valuable to me but I can't tell you how many people and, and I think what gives me so much pride at the end of the day is people calling in and just saying like I thought I knew everything but you've given me so many other things to think about that are going to be so valuable to this patient so I can't thank you enough and I just appreciate you being here for me you know and it just it, it warms my yeah. heart and it just it gives me the goosebumps and yeah it makes me feel all happy inside <laughs> <laughs> anything else to add about 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 Dr. Stata well you know I, I'm just very proud to work with them like I said you guys know my story now but you know they, they are impressive it's it's cutting edge research. We work with institutions like Johns Hopkins Hospital, the U.S. Navy, California Criminal Justice System, many other universities. We were awarded uh, Center of Excellence Laboratory by Salametrics. Only um, five people, five institutions in the nation received that um, for, you know, the, our work in salivary research and testing. And I just think, you know, I think the, as you said, the the science is there. And then that helpful voice on the other end of the line, you know, when you call us is, is really helpful to practitioners. So it makes, yeah. makes me proud to be there and makes me proud to be able to share that with you all. Um, and hopefully it helps you all too. Well, Dr. Nettle, it was just lovely to talk with you this afternoon. And I'm, uh, I'm so glad that you've been a guest on our New Frontiers podcast. I want to let all of our listeners know that this beautiful HUMAP test that we discussed today, there'll be a link on the show notes. I'm also going to pull together a package of links of some of the other uh, podcasts and blogs um, that I've done over the years with, um, with Doctors Data, just so you have that right on the show notes, a ready, ready access to the educational content that exists on the Dr. Karen Fitzgerald platform. Uh, so it's just there at your fingertips. And again, I encourage you all to reach out to Dr. Sita with your questions. They're very available and know that you can schedule uh, with Dr. Neville as I know I will be doing actually, maybe on my own results. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> In the not so distant future. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.